preaching through the gospel according to Mark all the way back from January on. And in January, we tried our best to schedule out the preaching for the year. So we mapped out the passages and mapped out the preachers all the way for the entire year. And as always happens, of course, there were several things that forced us to change here or there. Things came up here and there that forced us to schedule, readjust the schedule and tinker with it and choose different passages. Uh, for example, when we took the two weeks that our pastors did to step back and pray and prepare for the fall season and had guest preachers come in, that was an unexpected thing, and we put pause on Mark and then jumped back into it. And so with all those changes, all those rearranging, it was especially striking to me that the passage that coincidentally falls to us this week, uh, I don't know about you, but it struck me that here we are, two days from our nation's election day, that by the time we gather this time next Sunday, we will have in all likelihood elected a new president. And just as we're about to step into a week where we're going to be anxiously wondering who our next leader is, it just so happens that the passage that God has for us to consider this morning is Jesus making his triumphal entry as king. I don't know about you again, but for me, it seemed coincidental, nay providential, that just as we're headed for a week where many of us will likely be sitting in front of our TVs on Tuesday night, where many of us will be tempted as we're watching the election results come in to perhaps with sweat beads forming on our brow, anxiously biting our fingernails, our Facebook page is open with a status update ready to go, either declaring that everything's okay because so-and-so got elected, or everything's doomed because so-and-so got elected, that before we step into that, God has given us this morning this passage that shout to us at this time, Jesus is our King. Jesus is our king, and I want to say, in love for us, nobody us, in Northeast Philadelphia, with all the arrangements of the year, in love for us, God has scheduled for us to see this morning Jesus riding into a politically charged, nationalistic, religious, eager, excited, expectant, anxious crowd of people. And Mark wants to show us that Jesus is king. And while he's not the king they expected, he is the king they needed. And if we'll listen, Mark wants us to hear that too. Jesus is our king. And while he may not be the king we expect, he is the king we need. So Mark 11 is where we're at, the passage that was read for us. If you've got a Bible turn there, it's 847 in the Black Bibles, in the seat back in front of you, Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Let me pause for just a moment, ask God for his help as we consider his word, and then we'll preach through this together. Father, we ask you now, by the power of your own Holy Spirit, to make us aware of this opportune moment that you've given to us, this timely word for us, that you'd now cause our ears to hear, our minds to be alert and understand, our hearts to be soft and receive, and that you would help us to believe. Oh Lord, today confront the anxieties that come because we don't believe this truth and gently correct us by your own spirit so that we might believe even more firmly your son, who he is, what he's come to do, and what that means for us. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
If the gospel according to Mark were a play, uh, at the end of chapter 10, the curtains would have come down. And at 11 verse 1, the curtains would have went back up because 11 verse 1 is essentially the beginning of Act 3. It's the third and final act of Mark. And this section, 11 through 16, is going to finish this gospel account. And for you to get a clue of how important this final section is, take into consideration that Mark devotes nearly one-third of the book to these final days. What many say are essentially the last seven days of Jesus' life. So if Mark were divided up into sort of a trilogy, the first two books of the trilogy have covered nearly three years of Jesus' life and ministry and his teachings, all those days, all those moments, first two. And the last whole book of the trilogy would cover what's essentially a week. Seven days, as Mark wants you to know, what happens in this section is really important. This is what the entire story has been building to. And so Act 3 in the Gospel according to Mark begins with Jesus and his disciples making their way at last to Jerusalem. Now, in Mark, so far Jerusalem has been sort of like Mordor is in Lord of the Rings, right? If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings stories, you know that Frodo and his companions, they are essentially, the entire story is making their way to Mordor. Right? The only way to save Middle-earth is for them to get to that awful, dreadful city where they know the worst awaits them, but they have to courageously go there because unless they go through Mordor, the Shire will never be saved. Nothing will ever be good. For evil to be destroyed, it has to go through that city. It's sort of like that in Mark with Jerusalem. In fact, Mark doesn't give us the other stories that the other gospel writers do. He doesn't tell us about Jesus going to Jerusalem when he was a 12-year-old boy or being presented at the temple. In Mark's account, this now is the first time Jesus is going to step into Jerusalem. Because till now, Jerusalem has been this dreadful, almost awful city that Jesus has to get to. It's almost like there's an all-seeing eye from the city of Jerusalem that's been tracking Jesus' movements, watching his teachings, listening to him, that's been sending critics to challenge him, sending opponents to oppose him, sending scribes to pick a fight with him. And now, at last, Jesus and his disciples are approaching Jerusalem. We know already what awaits him there. In fact, three times Jesus has told his disciples, when I get to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes will condemn me and hand me over to the Gentiles. And they will take me and flog me and mock me and spit on me and kill me. This is what Jesus has announced three times, Mark has told us, is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And yet, despite the danger, knowing exactly what lies ahead of him, Jesus leads the way to Jerusalem. I have been struck as we've been going through Mark by that small detail. We saw it once last chapter, that Jesus walking ahead of his disciples towards Jerusalem, leading the way, knowing all that awaits him there, whereas you and certainly I would have escaped or avoided or evaded or found another way. I would have reasoned to myself, there's still so much good left to do. 
I would have told myself there's still poor people to feed and sick people to heal and dead people to raise. There's so much good, Jesus, you could still do. Jesus had his face set on Jerusalem and was going to lead the way there in love for you, in love for me. He was resolute in going to Jerusalem. And so now he again will lead the way there. Look at verses 1 through 6 as we prepare to enter Jerusalem. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So hear that for a second. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, but before he does, we get this sort of detailed section about the disciples essentially commandeering a, a, a colt or a young donkey for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on. Now, that stands out because that hasn't happened before in the story. We've never seen Jesus ride anywhere, right? It's a, it's a simple detail, a small detail, but it stands out because we've seen Jesus go lots of places in Mark. He travels to Capernaum. He travels to Nazareth. He goes to Jericho. He goes to the region of the Decapolis. And yet everywhere Jesus has gone, he never called a cab. He never Ubered it. He always went by foot. Every spot of dry land there was to cover, Jesus went by foot. In fact, not even when it was dry land. When it was even water, he would walk, right? So this Jesus, who has walked everywhere, now, this one time, here, at this moment, when he's about to enter Jerusalem, arranges to be carried, to ride in on a donkey. Now notice, by the way, that this happens because of Jesus' initiative, Jesus' deliberate action, that he himself orchestrates all of this down to the smallest detail. Did you hear it? Listen, when you go in, as soon as you enter, you're going to find a colt. It's going to be tied up. Untie it. When someone asks you, here is exactly what you are to say. Tell them the Lord needs it and we'll bring it back. Isn't that something, by the way? Someone said, this would be like two of us going down Welsh and saying to you, listen, when you get to the corner of Welsh and Bustleton, there's going to be a bike there. Just grab it. If anybody asks you, just tell them God needs it and that God will send it back when they're done, right? How would that go? And, and yet, here, that's exactly what is told. And moreover, that's exactly what unfolds. And what Mark doesn't tell us is does it play out this way because of Jesus' sort of foreknowledge as God? Or does it play out this way because maybe Jesus had made arrangements before? While we don't know that, and honestly it doesn't even matter, what Mark does want us to know is do you see Jesus is in control down to the smallest detail? In fact, the bigger point that commentators have mentioned, what we're supposed to see here is Jesus is not walking into Jerusalem as anyone's victim. 
He's not being forced there. He's not being carried there. What happens in this week, what happens on those last days, is not a set of tragic circumstances that Jesus happened to be caught into. He was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. No, none of that. But that rather Jesus, carefully, calculated, deliberate in every action, is in control of all of this. Everything that happens, happens by Jesus' control. That brings us back then to the question of why. Why this deliberate action? Why this bit about the donkey? Why the ride? And why the donkey to ride? Let me answer it like this. Imagine you were a Jewish family back then. It's the week before Passover. And imagine it's night and you're about to go to bed and your family comes together for family worship. Imagine dad opens the scroll. And the reading for that evening is way back, the prophet Zechariah. And dad opens up Zechariah. In our Bibles, it would be chapter 9. And he starts reading in verse 9. And imagine you hear dad read this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And dad rolls up the scroll and he looks at his little ones. And he begins to say to them, do you hear? God has promised that for us, someone called Messiah is coming. And one of the kids are bouncing off the walls and bouncing on the couch because it's family worship. That's what it's like in my house. And, and they, they ask, what, what is Messiah? What does that mean? And they say, it's this. There is a king coming. His rule will be through all the nations. His reign will be from river to the ends of the earth. He will bring peace to all the nations. And then one of the kids, as they're bouncing around, asks, Dad, who is this king? And when will he come? And Dad says, I don't know when he's going to come. But I know this, when he comes, people will rejoice greatly. There will be shouting near Jerusalem. And not only that, when he comes, he will arrive on a donkey, on a, on a colt, the foal, the, the young baby of a donkey. That's when we'll know. Now imagine you go to sleep, and the next morning your family gets up to go to Jerusalem with all the thousands of other Jews for the Passover meal. And as you're walking to Jerusalem, imagine you hear this great commotion in the streets. Imagine that people are waving things in the air. People are shouting and screaming. You might even say they are rejoicing greatly. They're shouting. And then when you peek up and you tippy-toe and you peer to find what's at the center of all this commotion, you find one solitary man riding in the middle of the crowd, and it just so happens he's riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does not one of the kids grab dad by his cloak, tug three times and say, dad, is he the one? Is this is this the Messiah, the, the king that we read about, that God had promised? That connection that any Jewish little boy would have been able to make is what Jesus wanted everyone to make. You see, till now, Jesus has done everything to go incognito. 
Until now, he's done everything to go unnoticed, be hidden, tucked away. He heals someone in Mark. He says, don't tell anybody. The crowds want to find him. He skips off to another town. Till now, he's avoided all public attention as much as possible. But not anymore. Now he acts to be noticed. Now he wants to make sure no one will miss his arrival. Now he wants to make sure no one will forget it. You see, he could have very much just marched into Jerusalem like the other thousands of Jews that were going in for the Passover. He could have just been a face in the crowd, but not this time. He deliberately, intentionally arranges so that as he walks in, everyone will notice. Because without saying a word, he is announcing to everyone, I am the one the prophet spoke of. When you read Zechariah, you were reading about me. I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited king of God's people. Seven Mile Road, Mark is shouting to us this morning, Jesus is our king. He has come and he is in full control. Jesus is our king. He has come. And he is in full control. I imagine God knows you need to hear that this morning. I imagine God knows I need to hear that this morning. I imagine God knows we need to hear that this morning. I imagine God knows the Christian church in America needs to hear that this morning. Jesus is king. He has come. He is in full control. This week I heard someone say that the old Puritans used to say that the providence of God, providence is a big word, it just means the control of God. He's in control of everything, down to the smallest detail. Where the raindrop falls, it falls by the providence, the sovereignty, the control of God. The old Puritans used to say the providence of God is a soft pillow for anxious heads. The providence of God is a soft pillow for anxious heads. Are you anxious? Are you anxious about details in your life? Are you going into this week anxious? Are you anxious about Tuesday? Are you anxious about the results on Wednesday? Providence is a soft pillow for you. Maybe, maybe you believing this this morning will mean that you confess, God, my heart has reflected that I don't believe this. My Facebook status updates has reflected that I don't believe this. And maybe you believing this week will mean that you go into Tuesday and enter that booth. Or you watch your TV on Tuesday night, and just at that moment when you're about to grow anxious, just at that moment when you're about to bite your fingernails, you begin to tell your own heart, the king has already come. The king we needed arrived. And Jesus is on the throne, and he's not waiting to hear the will of the people. He's not up for election. His office will not be vacated or filled by someone else. He is in control of every detail. Of every detail in my individual life, every detail in the small things, every detail in the big things. He puts kings where he wants to, all things happen according to his sovereign will. 
he's in total control. He's in control of my life. He's in control of who sits in the White House for four years. He's in control of it all. His kingdom outlasts every human kingdom. He rules and reigns, and nothing will thwart his reign. The empires that seemed invisible when Jesus rode in on a donkey are no more. One preacher I remember said, Caesar and Nero, these names sounded invincible. You now name your dog Caesar and your dog Nero. All the kingdoms of men are gone. They are, as other preachers have said, footnotes in history. The kingdom of Jesus lasts forever. He is on the throne and he is in control. And friends, when your heart and mine lies to me, and tells me that the providence of God is cruel and is going to dash me against the rocks. When my heart lies to me and tells me that God is orchestrating all things for my doom, do I not need to remember in that moment, as anxious as I may be, Jesus orchestrated all things to do what? To get him to Jerusalem, where what awaits him? Doom for him, so that there might be safety for me. The end of him, so that there might be the beginning of me. Death for him, so that there might be eternal life for me. Does not the cross prove to my anxious heart that the providence of God can be trusted? That he is acting for my good. And can I not see the control of God as a soft pillow on which to lie my anxious head and to lie safely knowing God is in control? Mark shows us through Jesus' actions that Jesus is king. And now we'll learn something also through the crowd's reaction. Listen as the passage closes with this section. Verses 7 and following. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now you see the crowd's reaction and you learn something. We've learned through Jesus' actions that Jesus is king. Now we learn something through the crowd's reaction. Do you know what I think this crowd looked like? I think you've been seeing what this crowd looked like for months. You know all those political rallies you've been seeing on TV? That's what I pictured this crowd looking like. They were excited. They were expectant. They were shouting. They've got signs in their hands. They're waving things in the air. They're making great shouts. And as their candidate walks in, the room erupts because this one person represents all their hopes for how things should go. This is the hope for how things will get better and where our nation needs to go. And so you shout and you declare and you wave things in the air. That's this crowd. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, this crowd essentially rolls out the red carpet for Jesus. Do they not? They spread even their cloaks on the road. They run into the fields and cut down branches. The other passages, like Matthew tells us, they wave those palm branches in the air. Others throw them on the street so that even their feet might not touch the stone. Even there, hear me, even there, this had happened before. In fact, there's precedent. 
Back in the Old Testament, there's a book called 2 Kings. A man named Jehu is made the king. And when he becomes king, it says this, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And now here we are. Jesus is walking into the city of the kings, the city of David itself, Jerusalem. And what do the people do? They take off their outer garments, their cloaks. They line them up on the street. Why? Because I think it's clear. The people were reacting to Jesus like he was a king. It's not just what they do with their cloaks. It's moreover what they shout. We don't have time now, but if you go back to Psalm 118... They pull out words from Psalm 118 and they scream them to Jesus. Hosanna! Hosanna means Lord, save us. Hosanna! They scream about blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That's this crowd. Do you see them? They are energized. They are expectant. They are excited. They are ready to declare that Jesus is king. But he is not the king they expected. They are ready to crown Jesus as king. But he is not the king they expected. If I could put it in a way that I think you'd understand. They figured... And I want to say this. I'm not saying this to take a jab at one of the candidates. I'm, taking, I'm saying this so that you might understand the mood of the crowd. If I could say it in a way that you'd understand, they figured Jesus had come to make Israel great again. In Mark 11, if people were wearing T-shirts or hats, it would have read, make Israel great again. Because that's what they're here for. That's what they see in the coming of Jesus. That here at last is the man who is going to save us. So when they cry out, Hosanna, save us, it's dot, dot, dot from the Romans. Lord, save us. And if they could fill in the sentence, it's from the Romans. Here at last is the political military hero that has come to make us great again. Israel was once God's chosen people like no other nation on the planet. God's blessings rested with them, and now they had come occupied by foreigners, and here at last was the man who was going to make Israel great again. This was not the first time that, that the people felt this way about Jesus. In fact, the Gospels tell us, John tells us, after he fed the 5,000, the people wanted to force Jesus to become king. I mean, in, in their minds, I imagine they're thinking, if this guy can take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000, what could he do with a few spears and some swords? What could he do to the hated Romans? And here they are walking into Jerusalem at the Passover time. The time when what? When God had rescued his people from the Egyptians. And certainly the God who rescued his people from the Egyptians has brought about who Bartabaeus said was the son of David, the king we were waiting for. We've thrown down cloaks. We're shouting out loud. We've cut the palm branches. He's riding in on a donkey like Zechariah says. Surely this is the one. He is the king. And here's what Mark wants you to hear. Jesus is the king. 
He is the long-awaited Messiah, but he's not the king they expected. In fact, look at how the passage ends in verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Did you get that ending? One commentator pointed out, you talk about an anticlimactic ending. Here it is. This energized, expectant, eager crowd. Cloaks have been laid down. Palm branches have been waved. Shouts have been made. The prophecy has been fulfilled. Everyone shouting. And it all comes to nothing. Mark says, the crowd is with him all the way till he gets to Jerusalem. It seems they even dispersed by the time he got to the temple. He walks in. He looks around. It's late. And he leaves. That's what happens. All this buildup for you to essentially hear, and Jesus entered Jerusalem, looked around, it was late, and he left. That's it? That's it. Because Jesus is king, but he's not the king they expected. But hear me, said Road, he is the king they needed. Mark is telling us, Jesus has come as our king. He's not what we expected, but he is the king we needed. I mean, couldn't you tell Jesus must have been a different kind of king from the very way he arrives? Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on the back of a chariot pulled by 12 stallions. He came in on a donkey. You think of that. You imagine, in your mind's imagination, how impressive could Jesus possibly have looked? Could you picture his legs hanging over the sides of this baby donkey, almost dragging to the floor? Could you imagine the saddle they made of their cloaks so sleeves are hanging out from the sides as it flaps by? This is the king? Could you imagine him arriving, riding, as one commentator said, on a steed fit for a child or a hobbit? This is what Jesus rides into. And somehow, Mark is getting us to see lowly, humble king. Tell me, how many prime ministers, how many presidents, how many kings and rulers do you know that could be described as lowly and humble and king? And somehow these words that shouldn't go together go together perfectly in Jesus. He's humble, and yet he's great. He's the first of all, and so he's the last of all. He's the king of everyone, and so he's the slave of everyone. He is great and least of all. He's humble, and he's king. Jesus enters Jerusalem not in power, but in humility. And that's because he wasn't the king we expected, but he's the king we needed. He entered Jerusalem not to put a crown on his head. As you know, he entered Jerusalem to put a cross on his back. He entered Jerusalem not to overthrow the tyranny of the Romans, but to die sacrificially at the hand of the Romans to overthrow the tyranny of sin. He entered Jerusalem not to make Israel great again. That's too small for him. He entered Jerusalem to make the world great again by drinking in the poison of our sin, restoring what had been broken by our rebellion, Undoing what had become dark through our wickedness. 
overcoming and triumphing over the evil one, triumphing over death itself. This is what he had come to do. He had come to push away all the evil so that at the end of the story, it might read like we all want every story to read. And they all lived happily ever after. And for that to happen, it wasn't going to be a temporary political solution. He would give his life for us. This is what he came to Jerusalem to do. Friends, the good news of our faith is very simply, beautifully put. Someone said it this way. Our gospel, the good news, is that we human beings tried to take the place of our king. We tried to take the place of God. We wanted to call the shots, do life our way. Everything exists for us. Every desire is for our own. We want to be at the top. We want to be where he is. We try to take his place, but the good news is our king came to take our place. He came and took our rebellion, drank in the poison of our sin, suffered under the wrath due to us, bore our penalty, took our shame, took our guilt, bore our condemnation, died on the cross in our place for our sins. This is what our king came to do. He traded places with us. He came down so we might be, as Pastor Binu said before, brought up. He reached for us when we couldn't reach for him. He came lowly, riding on a donkey. And the kingdom he established through his work in Jerusalem has outlasted every human kingdom on the earth. Every Caesar has gone, every president will go, but he alone will reign forever. That's good news. You can believe that going into this week. That crowd that day wanted a temporal political savior. What a tragedy it would be if we go into this week no different from them 2,000 years later. No. By God's grace, he's given us this passage this week so that we can go into this week knowing Jesus is our king. He was not the king we expected, but he is for sure the king we needed. Let's pray.